0: Hey, it's Turkey Week, March 11 through 17. Free shipping on all orders at First Light, FHF Gear, Phelps Game Calls, and the Meat Eater Store, too. You can pick up all the First Light gear that I wear in the turkey woods, plus so much more, including Meat Eater by Phelps Turkey Calls, which are straight-up killers, and Vortex Red Dots at 20% off. We're going to get you set up for the turkey season. So set up, in fact, that all you have to do is focus on that Tom. So head on over to TheMeatEater.com March eleven through seventeen for Turkey Week.
1: From Meat Eaters World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan.
0: Officials at a North Carolina fishing tournament made the controversial decision last week to disqualify what would have been the winning 619-pound blue marlin. The enormous fish was caught by the boat Sensation and beat the next largest fish by about 135 pounds. However, the organizers of the Big Rock Blue Marlin Tournament decided to disqualify the catch due to, quote, mutilation caused by a shark or other marine mammal The mutilation occurred before the crew landed the fish, and photos of the marlin show sizable wounds on its tail and abdomen. Several of you sent me the story, and the consensus on social media agreed that sensation got cheated out of $3.5 million, which was the prize money at the Big Rock Blue Marlin tourney. A fish that has been partially eaten by a shark weighs less than it would have otherwise, so it's understandable to wonder why this would disqualify a fish in any kind of tournament. The Big Rock tournament organizers explained that they're following a rule laid out by the International Game Fish Association, or IGFA. The IGFA says that this rule is on the books because a mutilated fish isn't fighting to its full potential. If it's been injured by a boat or a shark, it'll theoretically be easier to land than a fish that's totally healthy. An old, healed wound does not disqualify a fish, nor do recent injuries caused by leaders or lines. Tournament officials apparently decided that the wounds on this fish were recent, and they do look pretty gnarly in the photos. To add insult to injury, the sensation crew likely won't even sample their disqualified fish. Local media reports from years past indicate the large marlin are sent to local schools like North Carolina State University and are used for research purposes. Not that they'd want to consume the entire 500 pounds of meat anyway. Large, long-lived, predatory ocean fish can contain high levels of mercury and other toxins. Marlin aren't known for excellent table fare, but they do make great smoked fish and sausage. Still, I hope the sensation crew appreciated the experience which is likely a small comfort compared to, uh, you know, three and a half million dollars, and the fact that they're unlikely to hook into a fish that large again anytime soon. According to Nat Geo, the average adult blue marlin runs between two and four hundred pounds. The larger blue marlin are almost always female. Now, for the folks at the IGFA, when you consider that an above average fish that no longer gets to swim anymore still outweighs the next largest fish in a tournament, again, that is not catch and release. I I mean, who the hell cares? I mean, with three and a half million dollars on the line, I get that, you know, people really care, but uh, it's just not about the fish anymore, kids. Any angler will tell you that the ultimate test is being able to be a fishy enough person to weed out the small fish before they bite and get a bite no matter what. Uh, so IGFA, I got a bone to pick with you. A Y-bone, in fact. This week, the Crime Desk, Rabid Moose, Legislation, and CWD. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. In my week was great. I met the family for a rainy, cold camp out, which is a really good thing for the eve of July. We hit the lake in the canoe, caught several Arctic grayling on the fly rod, and one big burbot which happened to be my first open-water burbot ever. That guy hit a twister tail hooked on a pout-pounder jig somewhere in the icy depths of uh, 40 feet or so. I was thrilled. Cold-water fisheries with cold-water fish native to Montana is an increasingly rare treat. In fact, just downstream of the lake, you couldn't keep the non-native and invasive brook trout off of the fly. We woke up the next morning to snow, and the uh, reminder... That I had not gotten around to reinstalling the furnace in the old Black Series camper. So it was a chilly morning of wet snow on the canoe, cold hands, hot coffee, and one last game of cribbage before hitting the road. I hope you all had a good one too. Outside of that, on the old work front, I ripped over to Sheridan, Wyoming, home of Weatherby, to work with the team over there on some new offerings in both the rifle and scattergun categories that will turn a lot of heads by both their looks and performance. After the office and the manufacturing floor, we hit the range, rang a bunch of steel with the rifle, and dusted a lot of clays in the high Wyoming wind. Very exciting stuff coming up. You really got to pay attention. They're doing amazing things over there. Moving on to the crime desk. Game wardens in Montana are asking for the public's help in identifying the person who shot and killed a grizzly bear in the Cabinet Mountains in the northwestern part of the state. Wildlife officials discovered the bear because it was wearing a GPS collar. The adult male grizz had been collared for research purposes, and officials say it did not have a history of conflicts with humans. The bear was part of a small population of about 60 grizz in the Cabinet Yak Selkirk recovery areas. Researchers are tracking these bears closely in the hopes that they will expand and start to breed with the bears in surrounding areas, such as the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem to the east. It's a federal crime to kill a grizzly bear in the lower 48. Of course, there's exceptions for self-defense. Hopefully, game wardens are able to get to the bottom of this one, but if you have any info, go ahead and give them a call. Also, for those of you not aware, the Cabinet Mountains are the only mountain range in Montana you can put your dishes in. This story stretches the definition of wildlife crime, but I thought it was worthy of a quick mention. A South Carolinian used a toy pistol from the Nintendo Duck Hunt video game to rob a business, according to the York County Sheriff's Office. 25-year-old David Joseph DeLisandro rolled into a quick-stop convenience store earlier this month wearing a mask, wig, and hoodie. He showed the clerk the spray-painted gun in the waistband of his pants, and either the clerk didn't notice it was a fake gun, or he's just not paid enough to do anything about it. Either way, DeLisandro got away with about 300 bucks, but he wasn't about to drop the money on drugs or a nice steak dinner. No, this guy is more practical. Deputies located DeLisandro a short time later in the parking lot of a Dollar General down the street. He's been charged with armed robbery with a deadly weapon, petty larceny, and charge of, quote, wearing masks and the like, which is a new one on me. The duck hunt pistol isn't actually deadly, of course, but South Carolina law considers anything a deadly weapon if you pretend that it is. Delisandro is lucky there wasn't another quick-stop customer armed with a real deadly weapon who decided to restore law and order in Sharon, South Carolina. Hopefully the would-be robber uses this as an opportunity to take a hard look at his life and pick up some new hobbies, like actual duck hunting. He seems to have at least some interest in waterfowl. Moving across the pond to France, a man has admitted to killing a woman with a hunting rifle in what may be the worst drinking game ever devised by an adult beverage. Apparently, the pair decided to put on a bulletproof vest and shoot at one another with a rifle. The 47 year old woman went first, and she was found dead of a gunshot wound to the stomach. The 55 year old man turned himself into police in a quote, severe state of drunkenness the same day. This story was first reported earlier this month by the French media outlet AFP, but it doesn't appear that there have been any further developments. It's unclear what charges the man might face, what caliber of rifle he was using, or why they didn't consider beer pong sufficiently exciting. Returning to more traditional wildlife crime, five Wisconsin men and one Texas resident were hit with a total of 57 charges for poaching hundreds of shovel-nosed sturgeon and harvesting their roe. R-O-E. Roe is the mass of eggs contained in the ovaries of fish. Any female fish can have roe, but only fish from the sturgeon family are considered, you know, fancy pants caviar. Their roe can sell for as much as 45 bucks an ounce. The Minnesota Department of Natural Resources first received a tip in 2019 that men had been illegally killing sturgeon in Pool Number 9 of the Mississippi River. The investigation that lasted the next two years included hundreds of hours of surveillance and documentation. Game wardens found that the men would catch female sturgeon, harvest the roe, and throw the carcasses back into the river, which obviously makes them horrible people. Vladimirus Parsikovus, Soma Miller, RTM Miller received the harshest punishments. They will all have to pay over $2,000 in fines and restitution and have their hunting and fishing privileges suspended for the next 10 years. shovel sturgeon are a slow-growing species that may spawn just three or four times in their lifetime, so it's important for game wardens to crack down whenever they hear about sturgeon poaching. Hopefully the penalties are enough to dissuade these jokers from doing this again. If they want caviar, they should do it like the rest of us. Get a uh, spoonbill tag, or go to a state where it's legal to harvest spoonbill, otherwise known as paddlefish, and make it yourselves, you sissies. Speaking of regret, poachers in Hawaii have finished off a passel of pigs at a local country club in Oahu, and the club's managers want answers. We covered this story back in episode 203, and I'm sorry to say there's been an unfortunate update. The pigs lived on the golf course and surrounding countryside where the manager said they fed on invasive plants. But poachers have been going after the pigs for years and they killed five piglets in February. In this latest incident, local media reports that poachers killed the four piglets that survived the first shooting. The country club put up signs warning trespassers and they're asking for harsher punishments for poachers in the area. Pigs are a major issue to landscape, agriculture, ground-nesting birds, vehicle collisions. On top of that, they're typically delicious in Hawaii, and uh, the culture typically supports killing and eating pigs. So uh, good luck over there, Oahu Country Club. We'll end up with another update from a story we covered back in episode 199. Major General Kenneth Camper, a commanding general at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, was suspended from duty back in February. The Army was cagey about the exact reason, but it was rumored that the Major General had violated the base's hunting rules. According to another officer stationed at the base, Camper had killed elk and deer out of season, shot at animals from his vehicle, and killed animals at night in residential neighborhoods. The Army still isn't admitting to Camper's violation, but they did just permanently relieve him from duty. A spokesperson said that Camper had been removed due to a, quote, loss of trust and confidence in his ability to command. Camper is awaiting reassignment and remains in the Fort Sill area. Meanwhile, there have been significant changes to some of the base's hunting and shooting policies. One of the shooting ranges has been closed since February, the use of centerfire rifles to target pigs and coyotes has been banned, and the head of the wildlife department has left, along with most of his staff. It's unclear exactly which of these changes was the result of the general's activities, but an officer at the base tells me he suspects the fall hunting season will look very different now that Camper has left. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, you know regularly people everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks boats and small engines running the way they should the entire season help your engine run better and last longer pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit
1: seafoamworks.com to learn more hey everybody listen up i got i got mega huge news meat eater live is heading back out on the road that's right join me and the crew Clay Newcomb, Cal, Yanni, Spencer's going to be there. Phil the Engineer is going to be there. Meat Eater Live, head it back out. Now, when you get every ticket, okay, every ticket you buy, you get a signed copy of our new Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook. This tour is celebrating the release of the book. Buy a ticket, get a signed copy, Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, Wild Game Recipes for the Grill Smoker Camp Stove and Camp Fire, which I'll point out is a $38 value. Here's where we're going to go. April 23rd, the Mesa Art Center in Mesa, Arizona. April 24th, the Balboa Theater in San Diego. April 25th, the Grove in Anaheim, California. April 27, the Crest Theater in Sacramento. April 29, the Union in Salt Lake City. April 30, the Egyptian in Boise. May 1, The Wilma Theater in Missoula, May 2. The Bing Crosby Theater in Spokane, Washington. May 4, Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. And May 5, the last day of the tour, Pantages Theater in Tacoma, Washington. For tickets and more information, visit the events page at TheMeater.com. Hope to see you at the show.
0: Moving on to the CWD chronic wasting disease desk. Chronic wasting disease has been discovered in a Florida whitetail for the first time. That always fatal brain disease was first discovered in wild deer in Colorado in 1981, possibly early as the 60s in Wyoming or Colorado. It's been working its way through the country ever since. It's highly concentrated in some western and midwestern states, but the southeast has largely been spared. That might be coming to an end. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission confirmed that last week a road-killed four-and-a-half-year-old white-tailed doe tested positive for chronic wasting disease in Holmes County. The test was conducted as part of routine surveillance activities, and the commission has activated its CWD response plan. The first step in that plan is to figure out how far the disease has spread. The commission will collect samples from specific established zones to further assess the spread of the disease. The results from this initial sampling effort will inform resource managers so they can react with appropriate management strategies. If they don't find another case, they will presumably continue monitoring without making significant changes. If they discover that the disease has spread, those areas can expect to see changes to hunting regulations and reporting requirements. There are currently 31 states that have reported positive cases of CWD. It's also been confirmed in four Canadian provinces, Finland, Norway, Sweden and South Korea. There is no cure or way to eradicate it, so the best that wildlife managers can do is try to control the spread, which is where you come in. Keep hunting, keep having your deer tested, leave the spinal column and brain as much of that brain cavity as you possibly can in the field, remove those lymph nodes for testing, bag up that head if you must take it out of the field so you're not spreading little prions around, and for now, That's really enough. Not all that difficult. We don't know exactly how to combat CWD, but we do know some effective ways of slowing the spread. So eventually we can know a bunch about it. And, of course, you really shouldn't be artificially concentrating wildlife around, uh, you know, things like bait piles. Okay? Moving on to the moose desk. Speaking of infectious diseases... Biologists in Alaska have found that what they believe is the first moose to ever test positive for rabies in North America. Alaska Department of Fish and Game staff, based in the Nome area, received several reports on June 2nd of a moose acting aggressively towards people. It was unbalanced, stumbling, drooling profusely, and had bare patches of skin. The moose was killed, and the body was burned. But at first, biologists collected samples and sent them away for testing. Tests confirmed that the moose was infected with an arctic fox variant of the rabies virus. This is the same variant that caused an outbreak in red foxes and arctic foxes in this area last winter, so biologists believe the moose was likely bitten by a rabid fox. Scientists don't believe the moose population in this area is likely to see a rabies outbreak anytime soon. Moose tend to be solitary, so even if an individual moose contracts the disease, it probably won't spread it to its fellow ungulates. This desire for solitude is likely why the animals rarely contract rabies in the first place. Also, as Eli Fournier explains in an article for TheMeatEater.com, foxes are the main reservoir for the disease in Alaska. Foxes rarely bite moose, and so moose rarely contract the disease. While moose have been tested in South Dakota, Minnesota, and Canada, this is the first positive rabies case in North America. The folks in Nome had good reason to be concerned, Moose are dangerous enough without having a fatal brain disease that makes them lose all sense of fear. Besides a grizzly bear, a moose with rabies is just about the last thing I want to run into in the woods. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game says that hunters in the area should feel safe to consume moose meat if the animal is acting normally and doesn't show any other signs of illness. However, hunters should avoid approaching an animal, even a dead animal, if they suspect it has rabies. Rabies is primarily transmitted through saliva and nervous tissue, and the virus dies at temperatures above 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So, the risk of contracting rabies comes during the cleaning and butchering process, rather than while eating. Still, as we covered in a previous episode, there is no cure for rabies, and it is always fatal once the virus gets established. That's probably not a risk you should take, even for 500 pounds of moose meat. Moving on to the legislative desk, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department has proposed increasing mountain lion quotas by about 50% in areas with hard-hit mule deer populations. We've covered on this podcast previously how this year's snowfall was tough on deer and antelope numbers. In some areas of Wyoming, this winter kill killed two-thirds of all adult deer. To help those numbers rebound, wildlife officials have proposed increasing the mount lion quota from 46 to 70 cats in four Wyoming and Salt River range hunt areas. Taking more predators off the landscape will theoretically help more mule deer survive until adulthood. That may well be true, and I'd definitely defer to game and fish biologists who understand this area better than anyone but Wyoming hunters should keep a few things in mind as they engage in the public comment process over the next few months. First, not all mountain lion hunters like the idea of increasing quotas on their favorite target animal. One houndsman also told Wyophile that the quotas in these units don't usually fill anyway. I haven't confirmed this statement, but if it's true, it would obviously limit the efficacy of this plan. A study by a mountain lion advocacy group also claims that targeting mountain lions doesn't actually do much to help deer populations. Lion hunters tend to target large, male lions, but these lions feed on elk more often than deer. The younger, smaller lions that prefer deer are still on the landscape, but now they have even less competition from their larger cousins. I, for one, would absolutely love to see the stats on this. I gotta dig into it. Mountain lions are incredibly effective deer predators. Of course, any study conducted by an advocacy organization, we're going to take with a large grain of salt, which is great on mountain lion stakes. Wyoming Game and Fish Department Director Brian Nesvik said back in April, quote, I do believe that a potential exists to provide a more rapid rebound by targeting predator species. It's certainly not absolute, but the potential exists. The good news is that Wyoming residents will have a chance to weigh in Wyoming Game and Fish is hosting a series of meetings through June and July, and residents can also submit comments online through August 4th. We'll post a link with those details at themeateater.com forward slash cal. In Illinois, public land users are pushing a bill that would expand access to waterways in the state. Current Illinois law is pretty restrictive when it comes to water access rights, Illinois has just over 87,000 miles of rivers and streams within its borders, but just over 1,000 miles designated as public for use by everyone. House Bill 1568 would allow public access to a lake, river, or stream that is capable of supporting use by commercial or recreational watercraft for a substantial part of the year. This wouldn't allow anglers or kayakers to touch private land on either bank but it would prohibit landowners from restricting access to these streams and rivers unless they win in court. Way to go, Illinois. We'll end with some great news from Rhode Island. The state legislature just sent a bill to the governor's desk that clarifies shoreline access in the state. Current law and court precedent made it unclear precisely where public land users were allowed to access a public beach. This bill explains that the public can access up to 10 feet landward of the recognizable high tide line, and it offers ways for the public to determine exactly where that line is. It does not allow access on private lawns, seawalls, or other shoreline infrastructure, but it should help reduce conflicts between shoreline property owners and the public on the state's 400 miles of coastline. Big hat tip to the New England chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, especially Michael Woods. The bill passed both chambers by wide margins and is now headed to the governor's desk. If you'd like to get involved, tell Governor Dan McKee that you'd like him to sign H5174. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. On top of that, if you're ready to get outside and burn the old bald dome, it's summer, so head on down to your local steel dealer. They're going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't send you home with what you don't. Even if you're working in the yard, it's a heck of a lot better than working inside. Thanks again. i will talk to you soon.
1: Hey, everybody, listen up. I got, I got mega huge news. Meat Eater Live is heading back out on the road. That's right. Join me and the crew. Clay Newcomb, Cal, Yanni, Spencer's going to be there. Phil the Engineer is going to be there. Meat Eater Live headed back out. Now, when you get every ticket, okay, every ticket you buy, you get a signed copy of our new Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook. This tour is celebrating the release of the book. Buy a ticket, get a signed copy, Meat Eater, Outdoor Cookbook, Wild Game Recipes for the Grill Smoker, Camp Stove, and Campfire, which I'll point out is a $38 value. Here's where we're gonna go. April 23rd, the Mesa Art Center in Mesa, Arizona. April 24th, the Balboa Theater in San Diego, April 25, the Grove in Anaheim, California, April 27th, the Crest Theater in Sacramento. April 29, the Union in Salt Lake City. April 30, the Egyptian in Boise. May 1, the Wilma Theater in Missoula. May 2, the Bing Crosby Theater in Spokane, Washington. May 4, Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. And May 5, the last day of the tour, Pantages Theater in Tacoma, Washington. For tickets and more information, visit the events page at com. Hope to see you at the show.